Stocks, bonds, currencies, gold, fixed income, interest rates, geopolitical affairs. These are the drivers of the markets. These are the drivers of your money, your wealth, your investment strategy. Welcome to Magic Markets. I'm your host, The Finance Ghost, founder of thefinanceghost.com. I'm joined by my good friend and co-host, Mohamed Nala, founder of monos.com and one of the most respected macroeconomic analysts to come out of South Africa. He now lives in Canada, so we get his global perspective layered on top of emerging markets experience. This podcast is not about stock tips. It's not about financial and investment advice, so please don't construe it in that way. We are here to share our love of the markets, our passion for what's going on out there, and our insights in the hopes that it grows your knowledge and potentially helps you make better decisions with your money long term. Welcome to Magic Markets. This podcast is brought to you by Gray Capital, an independent wealth management company. Gray Capital combines the art of financial planning with the science of investing, helping you achieve your financial goals. Visit graycapital.co.za for more. Gray Capital is an authorized financial services provider. Welcome to episode four of Magic Markets. I'm your host, The Finance Ghost, and as ever, I'm joined by Mohamed Nala of monos.com. But also, we are joined by our first external guest, and what a way to start. Narina Fisser, a name synonymous with exchange-traded funds in South Africa. Now, for those of you who don't know, ETFs are a nice, low-cost way to obtain diversified exposure in your portfolio, and that lets you invest in a basket of shares with a single investment. It's a really great investment tool and something that's fantastic for anyone to learn more about. Now, Narina is a regular market commentator and she's great to follow on Twitter. I highly recommend that. She's been with ETF SA since 2015 and she's significantly contributed to growth in this space over the past few years. Now, the topic today is about the regulatory changes that may well impact both your retirement savings and mine. The Saab and the FSCA have been highly topical in recent weeks, with plenty of debate in the market about whether there is a major change coming to the rules about investing retirement savings offshore. Now, just before we get into that, as a quick jargon buster, Regulation 28 is the rule that dictates how your retirement savings can be invested by pension funds and the like. It prescribes certain maximums or prudential limits. For example, only up to 30% of your savings can be invested offshore. Now, as always, and as mentioned, I'm joined by Mohamed Nala. Now, Mo, you've got a few interesting points that you want to get through with Narina. So instead of giving you a hard time like I usually do on this show, perhaps you can instead briefly take us through them before we get stuck in with her. Thanks so much, Ghost. And Narina, welcome on board Magic Markets Podcast. We're super excited to have you here. Uh, Reg 28, I mean, if we're talking regulation, I mean, generally people seem to find that to be a very dry topic. And the way I want to get around this is a lot has been said over the last couple of weeks around Regulation 28, what it means. I'd like to take this in a different direction on, on today's show. And I'd want us to maybe, you know, we start out, the ghost has given us a high level kind of overview. What is what is Reg 28? But the way we see this is it's much bigger than Reg 28. It goes to a discussion around should there be curbs on what investors invest in? Does it play into you know a, a, an efficient allocation of capital over the longer term? These are some of the contentious issues. And, and the irony of it, before we even go across to, to Narina, is that 
REC 28 in and of itself is founded in a good space. It's there to ensure prudency with regards to investors' retirement assets. It restricts or limits allocations to certain asset classes. So, for example, there's a 75% cap to what you can hold in equities and so forth. And this is to ensure that investors look after their, their retirement nest eggs and they don't go out and invest irresponsibly. So I think the intent behind it is good. But bear in mind, it also includes an element with regards to offshore allocation. And I think that is where the points of contention come from because that's where it, it, it interplays with exchange control that is regulated by the South African Reserve Bank. That's also where it starts to interplay with other bodies, other regulatory bodies in South Africa like the Financial Sector Conduct Authority, like the Collective Investment Schemes uh, um, uh, Authority. And so I'd like Narina to maybe unpack who's in charge of what uh, maybe at the start, and then we can try and go into, you know, is this actually good for investors in South Africa? Should we do away with some of these regulations and restrictions in their entirety to ensure an efficient functioning of markets? Narina, over to you. Maybe let's let's kick off. Hi, Mo, and hi, Ghost. It's wonderful to join you, and I feel very honored to be your first external guest. So I hope I will be able to add as much value to this podcast as the two of you are already doing. So thank you for having me. And, and yes, it certainly does feel like a dry topic, but when you look at the level of emotion that surrounds the just the mention of the term Regulation 28, you wouldn't think that it is dry at all. So Mo, I do appreciate the angle from which you are coming, because I think it is useful to take take a step back and just think in terms of retirement savings in general. And interestingly enough, when we realize and acknowledge that retirement savings and, and the regimes under which pension funds and retirement funds operate are really one of your public policy tools that are used by governments, we need to actually acknowledge that this is not just about me and my hard-earned money and where I want to invest my money for my retirement. This comes as part of a much bigger picture that we are looking at here. And, and one of the most important things really is the fact that government does give us a tax deduction, a tax allowance, because we are investing in pension fund savings. So there is both the upfront tax benefit that one gets. There's an ongoing tax benefit where, uh, where funds that are invested inside of retirement structures do not attract any tax, dividend withholding tax or capital gains tax and so on. Um, and then even it doesn't form part of your estate. So it also means that there's no death taxes or estate duties payable on these. So I think before we jump up too much and say, but this is my money and I should be allowed to decide how I want to invest my money, we do need to acknowledge that some of that my money is actually, um, to some extent, I won't say given to us by government, but certainly there it forms part of a bigger framework. Now, of course, for governments, it's very important to have these type of regimes because for them, the most important benefit of this is that they cannot afford to have 100 percent of the population being financially dependent on government in their retirement years. So it's very important for governments to incentivize people to actually do save for their retirement and to actually make themselves sufficient or at least partly self-sufficient from government 
in their later years. So I think the, the negative way of looking at this is to say, well, you know, oh, so what government's going to tell me how I have to invest my money because they give me these benefits. The other side of it does come from the prudency perspective. And that's the, the, the approach that I prefer to take to this is to say, what is prudent in terms of how retirement funds should be structured, how we should think about it. And that now opens up a whole new can of worms, because I think where we find ourselves today with retirement fund policy in South Africa and in particular Regulation 28, I think we need to acknowledge that this still comes very much from a regime and a framework where we mostly relied on occupational pension funds and where the, the, the management of the liabilities of pension funds and retirement savings was very much associated not only in the build-up phase of your retirement savings, but very much in your, draw, uh, your drawdown phase and where it was one pension fund that had to accumulate savings on behalf of pension fund members, but also pay out the benefits to the retired members. And I think at the moment what we're experiencing is that there is some regulation being applied in the build-up phase in, a, in an environment where it is not really relevant in terms of matching liabilities during a drawdown phase or your retirement phase of your pension fund savings. So I think you raised some very important points, and I quite like the point that you've raised to say that it's not just my money. There is a component where you know the the state effectively has given you a tax incentive to build up your your retirement savings. Uh, but that being said, if we compare to other global economies, if we compare to to free market principles, and and you know, and and the ghost knows that I'm I'm a, a socio capitalist, if you want to call it that. I believe in free markets, but I also believe in doing the right thing at the end of the day. And if you look at that, yes, there are incentives in terms of. Uh, building up your retirement savings in other countries, but there aren't the restrictions on the other side of it. Now, if I look at this and if I, again, play devil's advocate and say, you know, South Africa, economics is about incentives and they are positive incentives and they're negative incentives. And for example, you know, the tax benefit of building up your retirement uh, savings, that's a positive incentive. But what about the negative incentives of creating distortions in the capital markets? I mean, that's something that, that really irks me from a macro perspective. And if, if, if we look at that, by restricting the portion one is able to invest outside of South Africa, for example, and I want to go to that point because I think that's really been one of the key points of contention. I want to get that one out the way. It's almost as though you create a trapped pool of capital that then exists in a smaller and smaller market. And exchange control in and of itself is something that, you know, again, we take our hats off to the Reserve Bank in that they have been systematically relaxing that over the last few years. But is it not time for South Africa to say, we're confident enough that if we remove this, we will also potentially remove the asymmetries that exist right now in terms of capital flows? Because as it stands, South Africans right now that are capital rich will look to externalize that capital, move it offshore. That's the reason why this discussion is so contentious. If you remove those kinds of institutional barriers, South Africans who have already externalized a large portion of their wealth may be more willing to consider reinvesting that back in South Africa because there isn't the institutional or structural burden of needing to apply to get that money out again. 
you you make a very good point, Mo, but I but I do need to just highlight something to you. And I quote here Stuart Theobald from Intellidux, who this week published an article on this topic and who actually referred to a 2019 study of pension schemes by the, the OECD, the Organization of Economic Cooperation and Development, where they studied pension schemes in 84 countries alphabetically from Australia to Zambia, and they found that in 82 of those 84 countries, there is some form of foreign exposure restriction on pension schemes. That might come as a surprise to many people because we seem to have this perception that it is only in South Africa and only because of our exchange control restrictions that we've got this restriction. And it's not. In all these other countries or in many of these countries, it's much more about the prudency of asset and liability matching. And, you know, the, the effective 40% limit that we have, because, of course, it's not just the 30%, there is also the additional 10% allowance that we have in, in the rest of Africa, outside of South Africa. So that 40% foreign limit is not unusual compared to the rest of the world. Having said that, let's now just think in terms of, I think, the point that you really do want to make in terms of the investment opportunity set that is available for not just pension fund members or, or savers, but in terms of the investment um, that's available around the world. An often quoted statistic is the one that South Africa represents less than 1% of the investable opportunity set in the world. And from good portfolio management and investment principles, it therefore stands to reason that it would be ludicrous to allocate 100% of your investment assets to less than 1% of the world's investable opportunity set. Add to that, of course, the fact that growth in many other parts of the world is significantly better than it is in South Africa. And you can clearly see where this demand, and I think a very valid demand comes from, that we should be allowed to invest more of not just our pension fund assets, but really any investments beyond the borders of South Africa. And I think it is in particular when you start acknowledging that a pension system operates over potentially over somebody's working life and beyond. So I think a lot of what we're currently seeing with things like Regulation 28, in other words, in the pre-retirement phase, the build-up phase, it is bizarre to think that it is during the build-up phase when there are no real liabilities on, 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 the, on the members' pension fund assets yet, that we are restricted in terms of how we can invest and that is exactly the time where we want to actually try and get as much return, risk-adjusted return in a prudent way. And then yet when we reach the post-retirement phase, once we actually retire, suddenly we are no longer fall under the Pension Funds Act. We now fall under the Long-Term Insurance Act where there is no restriction in terms of how much money you can invest offshore. So it seems as though these two parts of our pension fund system is somewhat out of sync. And I think that is why a review of Regulation 28 and the overall pension fund regime is so overdue and very necessary. And I appreciate this opportunity that we now have where all of the regulators, all of the market participants can come together and say, let's just think about where we stand now in terms of the reality of our workforce, where a very small part of our workforce actually still works in formal employment where they have an occupational pension fund and where they will be retiring from a pension fund, which in other words has a single liability structure, as opposed to sort of private pension funds, retirement annuity funds, which is only a pre-retirement vehicle and where the management of your liabilities would only come into effect after your retirement date from that personal retirement plan.
Narina, just around investment universe, perhaps I can jump in there with a concern, I think, from my side is, you know, every week we see another company delisting from the JSC. It, it makes the headlines mm -hmm. about as often as the RAND and, and, and something else about lockdown, you know. So that universe yeah. is getting smaller basically day by day. And what I've certainly seen is the RAND hedges on the JSC seem to attract a lot of institutional money. And obviously what they're trying to do there is get access to global growth via a JSC listed company, which doesn't then count towards this 30% limit. So it becomes mm -hmm. really interesting. You know, the other thing that happened was the real estate investment trusts could basically click their fingers around 2016 and raise billions of rand from institutions and mm -hmm. go off and, and build up these big property portfolios and build a whole lot of shopping malls that we debatably don't need. And yeah, the REIT market has, has kind of uh, taken a big knock this year and has not been as resilient as people hoped. And again, there's a whole lot of scandals around remuneration and all kinds of nasty stuff in the market at the moment. So the REIT brand has definitely taken a little bit of a knock. I guess the question is, are we are we not essentially just restricting ourselves and our pensioners? We're also giving money maybe to people who shouldn't necessarily be receiving it. You know, we're giving mm -hmm. money to South African corporates who then go off and do these blockbuster deals overseas. I mean, Woolworths is an easy example with David Jones, where they can raise money here and go off and do these huge deals overseas that they arguably shouldn't be doing. And hindsight is obviously always perfect, but there are just so many examples of these. You know, Famous Brands, unfortunately, mm -hmm. is another good one. Uh, it, it's it's almost because of these rules, would you say, or or do you think it's it's unrelated actually to this uh, to this restriction? Mm. Now, Ghost, you raise an absolutely valid point, and it is certainly, I think, just one of the many reasons why Regulation Twenty Eight needs a serious rethink. We know that the that the JSE has shrunk in terms of the number of company listings, but also it's narrowed dramatically because of the dominance of those those large mega cap multinational and and, and global companies. And that is another reason why I think there's been a lot of focus on the changes to Regulation Twenty Eight. But I think what's been extremely unfortunate is the, is, is the way in which it has been communicated and I think talked about in the market. And I think a very, very poor narrative around this horrible term, prescribed assets. Let's just quickly stop and talk about prescribed assets because we don't currently have prescribed assets and it's not on the cards. I'm old enough to remember and to know that in the 1980s, we did have proper prescribed assets. 53% of all pension funds had to be invested in South African government bonds. So prescription on that basis, so prescribed assets would mean that you are required to invest a certain minimum amount in certain assets. What we have in Regulation 28 as it stands at the moment is allowable maximum limits. And that's a very different construct and, and, and constraint if I can call it that, than prescribed minimums. And government has communicated on several occasions that prescription and prescribed assets is not on the cards, and yet the market has seemed to almost um, resolutely grab and hold onto this sensationalist and emotional idea that Regulation 28 changes is going to mean that government is going to steal my pension fund money and throw it into some deep, dark Iskam pit. That is exactly what is not going to happen. So it's exactly because of the the, the reduced opportunity set on listed markets, specifically the equity market, that what is on the cards is to look at increasing the allowance into unlisted investments. And I think infrastructure projects is one of the most common ones that is being used. And the idea really is there that it would be up to the pension fund trustees, the investment committees of these retirement funds to decide whether it is appropriate for the particular pension fund and its liability structure to actually in 
invest in some of these infrastructure projects. And I think fortunately we have already in South Africa some great examples of how successful some of these public-private partnerships can be in the renewable energy programs that we've seen. So I am very excited about these potential changes to Regulation 28 because I think it will actually open up the opportunity set as we have it. And then maybe we will not be required, as you rightly point out, to almost give money to people that should probably not be getting it and who just go off and squander it, um, you know, after after poor deals in, internationally. So I, I encourage and embrace this idea of changing Regulation 28, and I do think it's being done for the right reasons and in the right direction, but I think it's important that we actually get our narrative around it also sorted out in terms of things like um, prescribed assets, which I think has been completely um, communicated incorrectly in the so market. Marina, I'd like to come in here again and, and just perhaps a, a challenge to the argument uh, because, you know, yes, I, I, I definitely take your point in that it's certainly not prescription in the way that we had it way back when in the 80s, uh, but is a maximum limit on other asset classes not the inverse of then effectively redirecting that capital towards the other asset classes? For example that being government bonds, that being potentially infrastructure funds, and I'm not saying they're bad investments, but just by applying maximums on other asset classes, by default and definition, would shift the flow of capital, even if not in its entirety, towards asset classes that arguably wouldn't have found that capital flowing to them. Again, I go back to my point of efficiently functioning capital markets. Capital should flow like water. It flows to the path of least resistance. It should be priced accordingly. And we should be able to judge every single investment on its investment merits. I fully concur and agree with your point on, for example, the potential that is present and, and actually nascent in things like infrastructure funds, like clean or green bonds. And I think there's a massive mega trend that's coming there. And South Africa is primely positioned to take advantage of this. But by creating these distortions or maximums in other asset classes, we run the risk that even those good investment opportunities are not necessarily priced correctly or priced accurately to the eventual and total benefit of the investor. Because yes, it is still the investor's money, whether that's retirement or discretionary, it still needs to be the intent, should be the maximization of risk-adjusted returns for investors. Mm, no, absolutely, Mo. I take your point. And I think that is why it is so important that it is not just about um, increasing the allowable limits, but also that the range of alternative investments that are available via Reg 28 is increased. If you look at Reg 28 at the moment, it is a very limited range of asset classes that gets referenced. So obviously there's equities, there's bonds, or, or interest-bearing investments. There's property, and then you get to sort of the alternative investment space, which is a very crowded space for things like hedge funds, private equity, physical commodities, you know, the list goes on, derivatives even in terms of that. And all of that crowded space sort of sits at a maximum of 10 or 15%, depending on, on, on how you look at it. So by opening up that opportunity set to bigger allowable limits, you will necessarily allow more money to be able to flow to where it is correctly priced and where there is the opportunity that is appropriate for the particular investment mandate. And so that's really what I'm after. At the moment, I think the biggest channeling of, of inappropriate money that we're seeing is actually into the listed equity space because we don't allow for sufficient alternatives. So ironically, people's perception 
perception is almost that we are be going to be forced into the bond market, whereas actually what we are being done at the moment, and, and Ghost so well described sort of this, this, this captive audience almost that we have in terms of the listed equity space, the listed shares, the JSE shares, which nowadays, even though there might be 300 of them, but jeepers, there's not much more than probably about 70 or 80 of them that are really investable. Now, from my perspective, that is very high risk for a prudent pension fund. So um, I take your point, but I do think that by, by increasing the maximum allowable limits and also across a broader range of asset classes, that would allow good portfolio managers and good asset managers to actually provide the appropriate risk-adjusted returns for different investment mandates, including for retirement funds. Look, I think that's, that's absolutely fair. And, um, you know, I, the thing I'd want to get to, just cognizant of time, is that, you know, we, we've discussed how the universe is so small. Uh, and maybe let's just quickly touch on a key point here, which I, I think is, is very critical, which is the look-through principle. Because that's also been the point of, of contention. Do we apply a look-through principle? And for the listeners, this means that do you look through to the underlying investments and say, is the eventual destination of this offshore or domestic? And use that in terms of your categorization under the regulations. And I want to take this a step further. And I want to say, why should we only apply a look-through or not apply a look-through to the financial instrument should it not be applied at a company level like the ghost said there are companies that have taken south african capital externalized that in investment adventures if you want to call it that abroad and some successfully some unsuccessfully but some of the largest companies on the jse are actually companies that derive the majority of their income outside of south africa should the look-through principle be applied at all and if so should it be applied at instrument level or across the board even at a listed company level uh, Oh, Mo, please don't even tickle the dragon on this one. We definitely don't want to be going that way. <laughs> um, I would much rather see that that the allowable investments are, are, are increased rather than us having to get pedantic about this sort of level. But, but the point that you make is absolutely true, absolutely valid. So, yes, the look-through principle does say that you've got to look through to the underlying asset. But at this stage, that level of look-through sort of ends up at the either the listed security or the underlying economic asset that sits there. Maybe worthwhile to just take a quick step back and say, why do we have this look-through principle? And it was introduced in 2011 in the aftermath of the global financial crisis. Now, some of you may recall, and certainly I know that Ghost and Mo, you both know, that in 2008, one of the major causes of the global financial crisis was the packaging of subprime mortgages, in other words, sub-investment grade debt instruments, into a, a, a wrapper, into a package that was then given a triple A rating and so was allowed to be invested in by, amongst others, pension funds. And that's, of course, where the whole fraught apple idea sort of caused the, 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 the upset the apple cart for us. And what happened by around about 2010 in South Africa is that we had a couple of investment banks who thought that, you know what, we would like to offer more hedge fund exposure to pension funds. Um, but the only way we can actually do this is by wrapping it in some sort of structured product. And then we issue it as a note. A credit note sort of to the to the the, the company, the, the pension fund that's going to be investing in it. 
And the Saab caught on to this and basically said, sorry, guys, no, you cannot go and wrap something and call it a credit instrument or a debt instrument issued by a bank when the economic nature of the underlying is actually a hedge fund. And that's why the look-through principle was, it was implemented. And to this day, that applies and that is necessary for us to apply in terms of our foreign exposure as well. So, for example, if I buy a global ETF that is listed on the JSE, so it's traded in rands, it's, a, you know, it's, it's, it's basically a domestic asset. And in fact, this XCOM circular, which is now currently suspended, exactly addressed that aspect and said such, such listings, such ETFs would in future be considered domestic assets. But despite that, the look-through principle would still say, oh, but you know what, the underlying of the MSCI World ETF that you trade on the JSE is still all global companies, so it's still a foreign exposure. And I don't see that changing. I think there are other good applications of the classification of JSE listed also South African exchange listed instruments as being domestic, but I do not see that changing the way that we use look through in terms of regulation 28 to really look at not just the, the economic underlying drivers of these instruments, but obviously then also our, our jurisdictional, our geographic footprint that we have through these investments. Narina, thank you so much. I think that's pretty much all we have time for today. We've had fraught apples, we've had tickled dragons, uh, we've had rand hedges, and we've certainly learned a lot about the world of Regulation 28 and these prudential limits. I've certainly learned a lot. So thank you so much for your time and for yours as well, Mo. And I think my biggest takeout from this was that reference to that OECD study. You know, I would encourage Finance Goes readers and listeners, and, and the same for Mo knows, to, to always just look through what you see on Twitter, look through what you see in the media, try and recognize that you know sometimes people have opinions for deliberate reasons and you've always got to look through that noise and try and come out with something sensible and something practical and try not to be fearful when actually there isn't always something to be scared of. So with that, we can sign off on episode four of Magic Markets. Mo, Narina, thank you so much. Thank you. Excellent. This podcast is brought to you by Gray Capital, an independent wealth management company. Gray Capital combines the art of financial planning with the science of investing helping you achieve your financial goals. Visit greycapital.co.za for more. Grey Capital is an authorized financial services provider. Remember to visit thefinanceghost.com and monos.com for more detailed insights from both of us on the topics that we are most passionate about. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Nothing you have heard here should be taken as personal financial or investment advice. Speak to your financial advisor, do your own research, Make your own decisions and good luck.